Hello, and welcome back to my Love Letter Time Machine, where we are unfolding the Victorian love story contained in the letters of two ordinary people from Sheffield, Yorkshire, Fred Shepherd and Janie Warburton. I'm Ingrid Batchel-Hughes, and I just happen to be their great-great-granddaughter, and this time we'll be taking a look at what Fred had concealed in the shorthand in his diary, and then finding out about the time he and his football team beat Aston Villa. As I reflected in the last episode of this podcast, during the autumn of 1879, Janie and Fred's relationship became significantly more serious. Fred starts to mention that the pair have been discussing, as he put it, a very peculiar subject for two young persons. After a couple of entries in his diary, he switches to writing in shorthand, and whatever he wrote on the next three pages remained a secret for 140 years. The shorthand he had learned was an early form of Pitman. Fred referred to it as phonography, as it was commonly called then, and he was studying it at the Sheffield Church of England Educational Institute. My mother had learned Pitman shorthand in the 1960s, but the version that Fred was using was a lot older, so the diary entries remained secret. We had speculated that Fred could have been just practising his phonography, or he could have been writing about something especially private. When I first started the My Darling Janie blog, where I have been sharing my research behind the letters on and off over the last five years, I decided to put out a call to see if anyone could work out what Fred had written. Help came via the Sheffield History Group on Facebook, who put me in touch with a lady called Margaret Robertson, who was a bit older than my mum, and she was able to recognise the version of shorthand Fred had used. She kindly spent some time going through and deciphering my great-great-grandfather's archaic shorthand. I offered to pay Margaret for her time, but in the end, she asked me to make a donation to Race for Life instead. As I said, his diary up until now had been in longhand. While there was the odd shorthand line here and there, using shorthand for whole diary entries was unusual, and as Margaret discovered, was used to add a level of security so that Fred could talk about intimacies that he was sharing with Jane. While I feel a little guilty that his careful efforts only kept out prying eyes for about 140 years, Fred and Jane passed out of living memory perhaps a decade or more now, and none of their grandchildren are still living. So I decided on balance that although I'm sure Fred will not be very happy with me sharing this, I think it's really important. At the same time, Fred and Jane's story is also rewriting my understanding of Victorian courtship. Lovers' lanes are well in use. The Victorian morality that has been handed down to us doesn't seem to bear much relation to the particular facts on the ground that we have here. Trying to unpick what was acceptable behaviour within the social world that Fred and Jane lived in has been a puzzle that I'm still trying to put together. Sunday, October the 26th. Went to church in the morning. There was a gentleman preaching in the name of Guinness. That evening, to church with Janie, we had a delightful walk home. Mr Littlewood preached his farewell sermon at Darnell Church. Janie and I got talking 
on a very peculiar subject for two young persons. Monday, October the 27th, went to hear Mr. Wayne, electioneer at the Duke of York. When I got there, he had gone. So I went forward to Hansworth, met Ted and Miss Dalton, and came back with them. Tuesday, October the 28th, went to Hansworth, saw Jane at Darnall. We had a very nice walk, but rather uncomfortable on account of a conversation similar to Sunday nights, thus. And this is where Fred switches to the shorthand. She said that Miss Gibbons at Darnall went into her young man's room. I said that she ought not to talk about such things. I also said that I was of the opinion that people never did anything before marriage, but that I was gradually losing that opinion. From her manner, I thought that she would not take much persuading to do the same thing between us. So I said that I hoped we should never have anything of the same. Afterwards, I questioned her about her former admirers, thinking that I should find out whether they had taken liberties with her. I didn't find out. I didn't ask a point blank, but nothing today, so another time. Wednesday, October the 29th. I am very uncomfortable today owing to our conversation last night, though no doubt I like for us both to be a little sensual. It's not very nice to think of one's wife being too fond of it. 5pm. I almost feel inclined to go up tonight, although it's not my night. I may see her, and that will perhaps ease me a little. Thursday, October the 30th. I went up to Hansworth last night, as I thought I should, but didn't say anything about the subject mentioned before. Janie was so nice that I couldn't say anything to her. I met her coming down the street. She said she thought that I should come up, so went to meet me. I promised to go up tonight to see her. Friday, October the 31st. Went up to Hansworth last night. I saw Jamie just through the hotel bar exactly at 7.30. We went down Grange Lane where we met Miss, and Fred has left a blank, and Mr, and another blank. They did not seem to be getting on very well. I thought Miss blank looked rather sulky and low. She always seemed so bitter against the parson. Speaking of Parsons, I told Janie the story about Dr Gates' son at Bradfield, who was going to see the beggars fight. Janie was rather amused, but at the time I hoped she would not be, as I think women ought not to take any interest in such matters. We had a very nice walk down Woodhouse Mill, and then, of course, we had to have the usual swooning and kissing until my trousers almost burst. I'm afraid Janie will feel something some night as it gets so strong. My love for her until now has been very passionate, but now it's like a raging fire. I don't know what to do with myself, seriously. I sincerely hope that passion will not carry us too far some night, as from her manner I think she is as passionate as myself. I couldn't get married even if I wanted. Saturday, November the 1st. Played at football for the new season cup. We lost. It was a most disreputable match on account of the foul play and also the foul language. Sunday, November the 2nd. Went to Darnall Church with Janie in the evening and afterwards went for a walk but didn't get on so well as I should have liked as I thought she didn't want to see me before Thursday and I wanted to see her on Monday. At last I persuaded her to see me on Monday night when I expect we shall be all right. Monday, November the 3rd. 
As I was going home to dinner, I met Janie, who was going to Rotherham, it being the fair there. I saw her after by the train and promised to fetch her. I went by the 6.40 to Rotherham to fetch Janie and came back by the 7.10. I never went out of the station. Afterwards went to Hansworth with her. We had a very enjoyable walk. I am to go up on Thursday night. After getting so fond of Fred, who is funny and kind and conscientious, I confess I'm a little disappointed to discover that, of course, he is a man of his time, with the expected attitudes towards women, their sexuality and their interests. However, to watch him wrestling with his own preconceptions and the actual reality of a living, breathing woman who he clearly adores is fascinating. I know that Jane, just by her own goddamn breathing, is going to educate Fred and confound his expectations. And if the family culture that has been handed down to me from her, via the three women between us, has survived relatively undiluted, I imagine she'll have had no patience with any restrictions that didn't suit her. Much of the rest of Fred's diary for the November and December of 1879 concentrates on his um, other sporting exploits, with a particular focus on football. Fred's sporty genes have not made it down the family tree to me, but I'm finding the history of pre-league football oddly compelling. Football and cricket feature large in Fred's life, but I don't think I realised quite how much until this particular season. Fred mentions that he played at football at Cliff versus Surrey on the 29th of November 1879, which he later refers to as the Cup Tie. This turns out to be part of the season for the 1879-1880 Sheffield Football Association Challenge Cup. When Fred and his mates were playing, professional football as we understand it now, didn't yet exist. However, this was starting to change. As Adrian Harvey, from his book Football, The First Hundred Years, explains, between 1875 and 1885, almost every football club in Britain was embraced by a local association, some of which conducted fiercely contested cup competitions. The oldest of these was the Sheffield Association, an organisation that was very highly developed, including from 1873 the Sheffield Football Accident Fund, an insurance scheme for contracting players. From the middle of the 1870s, the Sheffield Association consisted of between 30 and 40 subscribing clubs and a membership numbering as many as 5,000 players. Naturally, the revenue generated by such numbers was sufficient to enable the Sheffield Association to purchase a 50-guinea trophy in 1876 and establish a Challenge Cup competition. Fred and his fellow Atacliffians got through to the quarter-finals that year after beating Talbot 2-1 on a very cold night, despite being a man down at half-time. The match has been recorded in both the Sheffield Independent and the Sheffield Daily Telegraph, although, frustratingly, Fred has been incorrectly recorded as J and not F. Shepherd. The headline just says, Atcliffe versus Talbot. 
these teams met at Park Lane on Saturday. Owing to the severe frost, the ground was very hard, and as the service was very uneven, good play was out of the question, spills being a frequent occurrence. There was a fair attendance of spectators, and at time their conduct was far from what it ought to have been. The home team, having won the toss, elected to kick downhill, with the wind in their favour. Attercliffe had not the best team together, owing to having a match at Blackburn. When the players had settled down to their work, the game was carried on in pretty even terms, Charles, Hawley, Butcher and Johnson showing most conspicuously for the visitors, while Wilde, Jenkinson, Thorpe and Stanyland worked assiduously for Talbot. No sooner would the Attercliffians get near the opposite goal than they would be driven back again. Several corner kicks fell at orbit, but no good came from them. When half-time was called, neither side had scored. Shortly after changing ends, the Attercliffians got the ball in front of the Talbot goal, where a hot scrimmage took place and resulted in a goal. Not long after this, they obtained a second from a corner kick by Charles. The ball was kicked right into the goal and appeared to go through, but was immediately kicked in again by one of the spectators. The officials decided in favour of the visitors and this caused a somewhat lengthened dispute. On resuming, the home team redoubled the efforts and after a heavy charge succeeded in capturing the Attercliffe Citadel amid applause. Darkness now set in rapidly, making it very difficult to distinguish the players. Time, however, put an end to the affair before any further score was made, the match thus ending in favour of Attercliffe by two goals to one. on the 13th of December and Fred mentions it in a letter to Jane and moans about having to go all the way to Mears Brook Park and that he is not sure if he's been selected to play yet. But he sounds equally disgruntled by a possibly fatal lack of kissing. Attercliffe, December the 12th, 1879. My dear Janie, when I saw you on Wednesday night I was under the impression that the cup tie would be played at Hunter's Bar but I found out afterwards that it is at Mearsbrook Park, just the other side of Healy. If I go, I shall have to leave the works at 1pm, so that I am not quite sure even now whether I shall be able to play or not, and therefore you see I could not very well promise to go with you. I think that, excepting accidents of course, I shall be able to catch the 7.20 train from Attercliffe, which arrives in Sheffield at 725 If you should by any mischance be somewhere, say, within 100 miles, I mean yards, of the Victoria station at that time, I shall not be very much offended. Supposing I see you tomorrow night, that will only make twice this week, instead of four times as it is usually. You will see a dejection in my appearance corresponding to the number of times that I haven't seen you, rather kissed you, and seeing that your kisses are as life to me, it stands to reason that I am half dead. Believe me, darling, I remain yours, Fred. Fred records the events as Saturday, December the 13th, Cup Tie at Cliff v. Healy, 
Healy won 2-0, afterwards went to the circus with Janie. We have a bit more detail about the football rather than any restorative kissing due to the account in the Sheffield Daily Telegraph. Healy v Attercliffe. This match was played on the Healy ground, Mearsbrook Park, on Saturday. At the outset, the Attercliffians looked as though they were going to win the day, but they did not cross with good judgment and often made long shots at the goal, which is a decided mistake under the present rules. Attercliffe won the toss and decided on defending the top goal. They got the ball near to the goal on several occasions, but they never proved themselves really dangerous. After half-time, Martin made a good run, and a rush was made on the Attercliffe goal, the result being a goal, the ball being put through by Deans. A few minutes later, Martin brought the ball up to the Attercliffe goal, but the goalkeeper stopped the ball with his hands. Before he could drop it, however, Haig rushed in and put it through a second time. Attercliffe struggled hard from this point, but failed to score before the call of time, when Healy had won by two goals to nothing. Attercliffe and Fred also went on to lose another match, 2-0, to Staveley, the eventual cup tie winners, on the 20th December, and Fred's footballing exploits for 1879 were looking rather glum. However, the club managed to recover glory before the year was out, as they took part in a traditional Boxing Day match and headed off to Birmingham to play Aston Villa. I've looked in newspaper archives and searched online, and the only record I have so far of this match is Fred's own diary record. Friday, December the 26th. Went to Birmingham to play at football at a cliff v Aston Villa. We won, four goals to one. Got home at 2am on Saturday. I found a photo of that season's team for Aston Villa on the history section of the Aston Villa Football Club website. It shows them all lined up in their numbered shirts and exceptionally long white shorts. And it's rather intriguing to know that it was perhaps some of these men that Fred and his team played. We'll leave it there for now. Thanks for listening to my Love Letter Time Machine. We'll be back next time when Fred gets news from Oxford, has an encounter with a Victorian celebrity, and we find out if Jamie dared to propose. In the meantime, you can follow me sharing excerpts of Fred and Jamie's letters on Instagram at my Love Letter Time Machine, or one word, or on the blog mydarlingjanie.co.uk Take care and have a great week.